ma'am. There, my, yes. All right. <laughs> Sorry about that. As I was looking out of the congregation uh, this morning, um, I was thinking about all of you and what joy you bring me uh, in the relationships that we have. John over there <laughs> almost jumped up. Uh, and, you know, one of my greatest regrets as far as humanity as being a human is, is the limited amount of time that we have and, and uh, ability to really get to know people. Um, I know some of you well better than I know others, and that's just the way life is. Um, everyone has a story. When we have people over our house, often we will sit down and we're getting to know someone. I'll say, tell me your story. And that's all I have to say. And I find out their story. Everyone has an interesting story. And I just wish I could spend enough time with each person to find out your story. Uh, but as I look out, I, there's a couple of people that I'll make mention of. And one is Gray Marcy sitting where he normally sits. Hadn't been here um, in a while. I don't Time flies. It might have been 10 years. It might be two years. It might be one year. I don't even know anymore. Just for a while, he's been away somewhere in California or somewhere on the, on the crazy coast, the west coast, uh, somewhere out there. But we're glad to see him back here and uh, for the weekend. He's not here permanently, as far as I understand. And then my parents, I'm glad to see them sitting here. I'm always on my best behavior when they're here. And so I'm thankful they're here. They've been traveling around the country, uh, out to Oklahoma and Arkansas, and then they got sick. And they had to stay home for a couple of weeks. And so I'm glad they've recovered from that. And glad my sister took care of them during that time. And they're back with us. So I'm uh, just thankful for them and for everyone else who's here. If you look on the screen, there's really no reason. I always say turn to First John. There's no reason to turn there. You probably memorized this scripture, chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to talk about the danger zone. And as we come to this passage, it says, it's six words. You can memorize this. And you children who are asked to do a memory verse and you always say, Jesus wept. Here's one that you, that's just about as short that you can memorize. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Last verse in, um, in 1 John. And at first reading, as we look at this, it seems to be abrupt. It seems to be a glaring end to this letter. Uh, John's conclusion, we've been looking at his conclusion, verses 18 through 20. And he states a three-point outline there. He starts at each one out. We know, we know, and we know. And then he just suddenly says, dear children, keep yourself from idols. And it almost seems not to connect with what he's been saying. In, in fact, in the entire letter at first reading, was to think, well, what, where, where did that come from? And yet we're going to see how these six words are a fitting summary to the entire letter. Now, here he's speaking of what I'm called the danger zone. I want to show you a danger zone in our next slide. The danger zone. That's a few years ago. Beautiful island girl there by the name of Angel, my daughter, down picking up shells off the uh, seashore in Fiji. What had happened, we, were, we had a group of campaigners come over to Fiji to help us in our work. And the, either the, I think the next day, the following day, the second day they were there, 
the country had a coup. It was interesting. We uh, um, we did fine. Uh, we got the we had multiple phone calls from parents overseas, you know, here in the states, wondering if their children are arrested or fine or what's going on. And we w- were able to complete the campaign, and uh, then they went over to the western part of the island, about a hundred miles away, to a backpackers hotel for the last couple of days before they flew out. And Angel and Matthew went with them, just just to go with them. At that point, we had a 48-hour curfew. Just suddenly on the radio said, we're, you're under curfew. Do not come outside for 48 hours. Wow. So we're stuck inside. I, they were supposed to come back on a bus, and I called over to the Backpackers Hotel and said, can they stay there? Uh, you know me. I will come and pay their bill. Just feed them, <laughs> you know, uh, take care of them, and we'll come over and, and when, when, when this uh, curfew is over, and we'll... We'll come over and take care of the bill and pick them up and bring them back. And so we went over there and because of the, uh, you know, they dropped the curfew after a while, after a few hours. And we weren't allowed to go out at night and stuff like that. I think 6 p.m. or whatever. And anyway, we go to the western side of the island and I say, let's just stay here a few days. I mean, we're about a mile from the shooting uh, where there's a a military uh, guard, a roadblock. Right 20 yards from our house. So why don't we just stay here for a few days? I hope you see the wisdom in that. Uh, so we were in this little backpacker's place. And this is low tide as we just step out of our little bourree there and little house that we're staying in. And at low tide, you see all that brown stuff is coral. And it's beautiful at high tide. You just float them on top of it and, and you look down and see all the fish and the uh, stuff down there, the beautiful coral. Uh, but at low tide, it's dangerous to walk out on that because there's holes and you know, it's sharp. And if you look way in the distance, two, three hundred yards out, there is a barrier reef. You can see the, the water coming over the barrier reef. Well, Matthew had gone out there and there's this barrier reef and there's a concave that comes in and a trench that comes through. And it's a really fun place to stand. And look over at this, the power of the universe, of the water, crashing against this great barrier reef. And I went out there with him one day, and then the following day, Matthew says, let's go out. It's it's morning. It's time for me to have my coffee. And I I said, well, I'll wait for a few minutes. And he says, well, I'm going to go on out. He did. And Angel fortunately stayed with us. And I think I've told you the story before, but I've never shown you the pictures. And so... As we're gingerly making our way over these, this coral that we're walking on, we see Matthew in the distance standing there, and we hear the rumble of the waves of it as it hits the reef. And I'm looking down with a stick, making sure I don't step into a hole, and Angel suddenly says, Matthew's gone. I looked up, he was gone. The, a big wave had come and just took him, and we couldn't see him. She said, should I run ahead? Because she knew she was faster than me. And I was like, I don't want to lose two children. <laughs> One's enough. I said, no, no, no. And I'm sitting there thinking of all the possibilities and all the scenarios and what should I do and if he's washed over the edge and whatever. Suddenly another big wave comes up and out of this foam, Matthew comes crawling out of it. 
And what had happened in this trench that was deep, I don't, I don't know how deep it was, that first wave had taken him and pushed him into the trench and he hung on to that. And he said the water just went out and he's hanging in the air by one hand. But he said, I held on to my snorkel and mask. <laughs> and he's hanging there until that water filled up again and just flushed him out, pushed him out. Now, if you're squeamish, don't look at this next slide, okay? Because this is him scraped up. So there he is, a little bit scraped up. That coral, you know, took his side and, and his elbow. And it's not, you know, it could look like some paint. If you watch movies, it's, you've seen worse. <laughs> and this next one, when we fixed him up, and isn't he cute? <laughs> All wrapped up like a little puppy has been hurt or something. I think it was about 18, 19 years, 19 years old, something like that at the time. But there's a danger zone out there. And, you know, and we, we'd gone out there and, and I talked about it before and said, you know, this, this is dangerous out here. In the middle of all this beauty, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. This power, there's a danger zone. And in the middle of a blessed life in Christ, there's a danger zone. And John ends this saying, I want you to be careful. There's something dangerous out there. There's a dangerous place in this world. Now, you, you may have heard, as, we, as I quoted this, the first word, first words in English is dear children. And I've mentioned this several times, but I'm going to mention it one last time because it's here. And I've become convinced in my studies that this is an, an overlooked word. That is important and essential. It's an important and essential concept for us to grasp. This is the seventh time that John in this little letter has called us little children or dear children or introduced this thought of children. And you may go to your commentaries and read through it. And, and usually what the commentaries say is something like this. John was an old man and he had a relationship with this church. And he saw them as, as his little children. And I'm sure that's true to a certain degree. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, the first time he uses this, he says, my little children. He does refer to them as his little children. But all the rest of the times he leaves out that word mine just says children. Little children or dear children. And I believe that each time he uses this word. Every time he is remind, he's reminding us who you are, who we are, and our relationship with God, because we're God's little children. He's talking about our relationship with him, but not only our relationship with him, but based on that relationship, how we are to live, how we are to act. And this is so important. I cannot stress the importance of this. Because you will act out of who you believe you are. So it is important to know the truth of who you are. Here's my little children. And you will only act out of who you are. You can believe a lie. And you can live out that lie. As if it were the truth. And you will have a wasted life. But on the other hand, you can live in opposition to who you are in Christ, who God has called you to be as a child of God in your life 
will still be wasted. He calls him my little children. Who am I? I'm God's child. I'm God's little technia is this word. And this is the tender word that a nanny would call her little children that she was in charge of. The nickname that many, many of you have a nickname, right? And if I went around and said, do you have a nickname? It would be funny just to hear all the little nicknames. And we have nicknames for some of our grandchildren and children, and some haven't gotten one yet. <clears throat> Jonah, there, Joe Blow. Michael is Mikey. Kai is Kai Y. That's kind of hard to come up with a nickname, but sometimes he's Kai Y. Ayana, Yanni, right? Who's Tui? Is he Tui Louie? <laughs> Amelia is Mia, or I call her Minky Bear sometimes. Do you believe that that's how the creator of the universe looks at you? That he looks at you as his little technia, his little child. That he is the father that's concerned and loving to his little children. I think many are far more comfortable with a distant God. A supreme judge. That somehow Jesus will mollify his anger. We're more comfortable being afraid of him than loving him. And it's because we need to understand fear or love. It's important for us to understand both. And both are very deep concepts. We spend a lot of time on the love of God. We spend some time on the fear of God. How many times does God have to call us his beloved? That's another word he uses, my beloved, before we actually believe him. This relationship of love not only produces joy and assures us of our salvation, but it keeps us from sinning. This is important. It keeps us from sinning. The greatest deterrent from sin is love. If you can properly define what God's love is, and this is where our problem is, we don't know how to define God's love. It's so great. If we properly define God's love, really understand God's love, it will stop us from sinning. God's love isn't something nice and gooey that excuses sin. I've said that many times. It's not something that lets sin slide. It teaches us discipline. Um... Over in Titus, let me just read this real quick. Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God, and that's the love of God. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us. Here's the lesson. Here's the lesson that God's grace, God's love teaches us. It teaches us to say no to what? Ungodliness and worldly passions, that's your feelings. It teaches us to say no to our feelings, to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright. That means doing the right thing and godly lives in this present age. We haven't learned the lesson of grace. We haven't learned the lesson of love. We think it's something soft and easy that, we, that excuses us from sin. It actually teaches us to say no. 
We either refuse to say no or we haven't learned the lesson. And God's love includes discipline. Hebrews chapter 12. We read a section, that whole section there. But in chapter seven, uh, chapter 12, verse 7 and verse 9, it says, For it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, as with children. For what son is there that whom his father does not discipline? But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. And this discipline doesn't mean he gives you a whooping. That's what we often think. That word means it's like a teacher, one who constantly, consistently corrects. He's going to correct your course. He's going to discipline you. He's going to help you. He's going to guide you. He's going to put you in situations that will force you to do the right thing or to consider doing the right thing. If you're flipping about God in regards to sin, if you make the excuse, oh, God will understand. God loves me. You can be sure that God does love you and he loves you so much that he will discipline you. That's how much he loves you. He's going to help you. And so here in 521, we have this warning that that God is saying, I want to prevent you from sorrow. I want to prevent you from grief. I want to prevent you from misery as a child of God. And so I'm going to give you some instructions here to stop you from going down that road. I counsel Christians all the time who are in despair, in sorrow, in hurt because they don't know this instruction or they don't follow it. That's the problem. God desires that your life is full. That your life is holy. That your life displays righteousness and peace and much more. Jesus said, I came to give you life to the full. You just be filled up with life. That's why I came. And so John ends this letter by giving a warning that says, don't live this way. There's certain things you need to do so that your life will be to the full. He's not trying to scare you into repentance or change, but he's reminding you, listen, this is who you are. This is how you're to live. And he says here, this is what you do. Keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols. This is kind of a fuzzy picture taken years ago when we were at the Indian Firewalkers. Uh, one of the men here is kind of blue, is dressed up as one of the gods there. These people have skewers through their mouth and skin, running on hot fire in honor of their gods. I've been in the Hindu temples, and here's one, this one here is in Nandi, Fiji. Has every, well, my understanding, has every god of the Hindu religion on, uh, in display on the temple. And if that is a part of your culture, that's an application. If part of your culture is the bowing down to idols, physical idols... Then here's an application. Don't do that. Keep yourselves from that. But I'm speaking to a bunch of Americans. We have many of you have never even seen an idol like that. You don't have idols in your homes. I told you a story about sitting down with another one of my Indian friends in his bedroom, sitting on his bed as he explained the worship of Lakshmi right there in front of us. And he told me all about his worship of 
the goddess of pleasure, money. But this word idol means what is seen. That's literally what the, the, the word comes from, what is seen. And interestingly, the old Greek, the classical Greek, means a phantom or a shadow. And what he's saying here, what an idol is, is materialism. The material world is what is seen. But God says, that's not real. That's a shadow. And if you read the book of Hebrews, this is one of the stresses of the book of Hebrews. He says, don't go back to the shadow. And he's talking about physical things like the temple there and, and, the, and, and uh, many other things, he says. But don't go back to that because we want to anchor ourselves in the reality, the spiritual reality of Christ. It looks like a real thing, but it isn't. It's not permanent. It's not, perm- it's not real in the sense of permanent. It's real in the sense that it's, yeah, I mean, that's real. I know that. I, I, my body is real. I'm not saying we are shadows. But in the, in the reality of permanence, it's not permanent. This is a call to think things through. He's saying, think this out. Be clear-minded. The world is full of idols. And we may, need to make sure that we're guarded against these idols. This made me think about the freedom of believers. We have a freedom in Christ. Do you know that God never robs you of your free will? You become a Christian. And I, this might shock some of you, especially if you're a, new, you're a new Christian. God does not arrange your life so that everything will now be positive and wonderful. Once you become a Christian, it's not a ticket for a free ride and a wonderful life. It may not happen that way. But let me tell you what he does. He gives you the ability. He gives you the power. He gives you the tools to know how to deal with life as it hits you. He gives you that ability. He gives you that strength. In other words, he doesn't remove you from the struggles and the pains and sorrows of the world. But it's your responsibility as a person to deal with it the way he has instructed you and given you the ability to deal with it. He gives you the strength. He gives you the knowledge of how to handle it. And that's why in this little book is over and over. We know this. You know this. You know this. You know this. He's reminding us so that we'll have that the tools to live the life we're meant to live. And that's what this little phrase is teaching us. He says, guard yourself from idols. We have the freedom to chase shadows or chase reality. You have the freedom to live your life chasing shadows. I don't know the point in your life. I, I, well, that's another sermon. I can't go there. I don't know the point in your life where you... Well, oh man, I don't know. I'm going to, I don't, okay. All right, let me just say this, and, and there's another sermon, so I don't want to go. I don't know the exact point in your life when you go from being in a, a saved relationship to a lost relationship with God. But I am confident that a Christian can chase shadows and be in misery and still be saved. All right? Because we all chase shadows at times. All right? We're all following the wrong thing sometimes, as we will see in a moment if you don't believe me. You can choose to be a disciple who is anchored in reality. What's real? Christ is real. Or you can be overwhelmed by the world around you. I deal with people all the time who are Christians who are overwhelmed with the world. They're saved. They're in a relationship with God. But they're in misery because they're chasing shadows. 
You can chase things like your feelings. Your feelings derive, uh, drive you towards things. It's you're going for, toward these overwhelming experiences that make you feel good. And God says that's not real. The reality is in Christ. I'm going to read, hopefully quickly, Colossians, if I can find it. It's in my Bible. Colossians chapter 2, 16. And there's many other places we can go through, but this just points it out. Listen. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you of what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. I'm reading too fast. I'm sorry. These things, physical things, are a shadow of the things that were to come. Now that it's come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The things are a shadow. The reality are the things found in Christ. And then he says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility, the worship of angels, disqualify you for the prize. This is the whole sermon. Since a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions, just mindless thinking. He's lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God has called it, caused it to grow. Listen, since... Since you've died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, the basic ways of living, the way the world says, this is how you live. This is reality. Since you've died to that, you have died to that. If you're a Christian, you have died to it. You may be still messing with it, but you have died to it. Why? He asked the question. As though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Why are you still living that way? You died to that. All the some of them do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use, the things, because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such reg, regulation have, has an appearance of wisdom. It looks right with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their rash treatment of the body. But they lack value in restraining sensual indulgence. You can have all the rules you want to stop you from following your feelings. It's not going to do it. It's what he says. Since then, he says, you have been raised with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. If you've been buried in baptism, you've been raised with him, then do this. Do this. Set your hearts on things above. Take your emotions and put them on things above, not on things of the earth. For Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Set your minds, not only your feelings, but your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Don't focus on the earthly things. For you died. You did. You died. Not you will die one day. You died. And your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, is, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, kill these things. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And I've read all this to get to this point. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Greed, me, me focused, is idolatry. What focuses me on me? My feelings, my desires, what I want. A mind wrapped up in the world, a heart set on things of the earth, an earthly mind moved by earthly desires is idolatry. That's idolatry. And I look at that, and you look at that, and we all say, you know, sometimes my mind is wrapped up in this world. My heart is set on things in this world. I have my mind set on things. And he says, be careful. 
Guard yourself from that because that's idolatry. And in this context, chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, he's comparing what is true and what is false. He says, here's reality according to God. And we spent, uh, I don't know, four or five sermons on this, so I'll just go through it quickly. God, uh, the Christian, no longer lives in the condition or state of sin. The evil one cannot hang on to him. 5.18. Second, we are God's children, and the world, though, is in bed with evil. That's verse 19. And last, the Son of God came. He enabled us to understand so that we can know, we can know what is true. And the truth is wrapped up in who God is and then who we are living in him. This is a real and vital relationship. That's verse 20. And then we come to 21, and it's just a negative counterpart of these truths. It's the reverse. It's it's the opposite, I guess. And he's saying... What will undermine these truths that I've just told you is idols. All these things I've told you is true. We know this. We know this. We know this. What undermines that are idols. The more you are wrapped up in idols of the world, the less you'll believe in the reality of the spiritual. And the word here is the idols. It's not in your English. It's hard to translate that. Not just a bunch of idols. He, he did a similar thing in chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. Listen, uh, not First, Second Peter. Let's go to First John chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. He says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? The man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. At that point when he says... No lie, there's another word that's not translated because it's it's too awkward to translate. But it means every lie. Every lie that the world piles onto you. You know it's not true. The, The lie, the world delivers one lie after another to you. All day long. All year long. You're being fed lies. The world lies to you. Satan uses good things and he twists them to make them a lie. He turns them into lies. He turns them into idols. There's not a thing on this earth that Satan cannot change to an idol if you let him. And this warning, again, isn't to the obvious idols that we worship even. Not the physical, you know, if it's a physical one, it's a physical one. But we have little problem recognizing the the idolatry of Pornography, the idolatry of drugs, the idolatry of alcohol, murder, etc., etc. But here's where most of us struggle right now. We struggle with the good idols of work, family, entertainment, success, money, and the idol of the church. I told you, Satan can take any good thing. He can take anything that God has given us that's good and he can turn it into an idol. We can be so focused on the church that we miss God. Isn't that amazing? We can. Think about it. We can be so focused on this assembly that we miss Christ. This assembly isn't what it should be. And we're so focused on the assembly and I place myself in there with whoever that we miss Christ. We're so focused on the number of baptisms 
our budget, how many Bible studies we have, how much we're praying, our benevolence, all the good things that we should be doing. I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing any of them. We should be doing them all. But we do it in such a way that we glorify ourselves and we justify ourselves and we're pleased with ourselves. We miss God. What a great church we have. Don't we have a great church? Isn't it a wonderful church? We've done it. And it's all because you're a preacher because he's so good. You miss. See what I'm saying? You, you can miss God. You can miss God in having a great church. We have to be so careful. And that's why the warning is here. Oh, if I say, hey, who wants to come over to my house? We're going we're gonna, well, to, I don't want to say too much. We're going to have, we're going to do something bad. All right. Come to my house. Let's, let's do something bad. Everyone's going to say, what are you talking about? Have you lost your mind? We know that's wrong. We stay away from that stuff. But we can so get so wrapped up in the church and how we are doing things and the wonderful things that I'm doing and so on and glorify ourselves that we miss God. We, it's so subtle. We have to be so careful. And so that's why he says, keep yourself from. Keep yourself from. And that word keep is different than the other keeps that we've seen in the past that are translated obey sometimes or guard. This is a strong word. This, this word here means like a soldier guarding the perimeter. That's what it literally means. You're a soldier guarding the perimeter. The enemy is around you, not necessarily attacking you at this moment, but you know it's fatal if you drop your guard. You veterans, ex-military, you know when you were on guard duty, you weren't slack. Uh, if you were, you got in big, big trouble, right? You're on guard duty. You're there for a purpose and you're watching. You're watching for the enemy. You don't let things slide in. And this tense calls for a strong and urgent decision to do this specific thing. It is saying, do this. Make sure you do this specific thing. I want you to guard against idols. And it stresses the personal responsibility. You're responsible for this. Yes, John, in just a few verses before verse 18, he said that God keeps us safe. It's a different word, keep, but it's similar. God keeps us safe and the evil one will not harm us. That is true, but it doesn't mean you coast through life. It doesn't mean that everything's okay, that God, God's going to take care of you and you don't have to worry about a thing. You don't have to keep guard. He said, no, God will take care of you, but you have to take care of it yourself too. You have to stay on guard over and over. The Bible says, think, be thinkers. Make decisions. Work with God. You've got to participate here. You just can't let God do it all. It's not let go, let God. You know, that's a beautiful statement. If it's in your kitchen, fine. But that's, that's really not that biblical. What it is is let God and, help, and uh, participate with God. It just doesn't rhyme or whatever. Make up something that talks about hold on to God and let God, I don't know. The Christian life is not a lazy life with lazy minds and lazy morals and lazy values. It's recognizing that you're a child of God and you're going to live like a child of God. And you're acutely aware that if you drop your guard, there's danger. It's, it's a paradox. Your relationship with God, your tie that binds you together is so strong and powerful that Satan himself cannot tear you from his grip. 
That's biblical. Your relationship with God is so strong and so powerful that Satan himself cannot tear you from his grip. But his hold is so gentle that you can walk away from it if if you wish. It's a paradox. Yes, he is hanging on to you. If Satan tries to take you, he will not let you go. But you can let him go. You can walk away from it. You can drop your guard. And when you do, unbelief is right around the corner. John's purpose for this letter, as you know, has been threefold. Your joy will be overflowing. You will reject sin. And you'll be assured of your salvation. And there's one thing that will thwart all these. The idols. The idols around you. The idols of the world. Don't let go of God's hand. Idols will cause you to do that. Idols will cause you to lose your joy. Idols will cause you to sin. Idols will distract you from your salvation. Let me put it this way. If your joy isn't overflowing in your life. John said, I wrote this, that your joy would be overflowing. If your joy right now is not overflowing your life, ask yourself, what idol is causing that? If sin is present in your life, which idol are you bowing down to? Which idol are you worshiping? If you do not know that you have eternal life, what idol is distracting you? It gets really personal, doesn't it? It gets personal to me. When I look at my joy and I say, what's distracting? And it's, it's a daily thing, by the way. It's a daily thing. I struggle with joy every day. I struggle with sins every day. I just struggle with my assurance of my salvation every day. And it's an idol every time that distracts me. And it's my own personal idol. I have it in my room. It's on a stand. This is figurative. It's on a stand. And I bow down to it. And every time I bow down to that idol, or that idol, or that idol, I lose my joy. I walk into sin. I'm not sure of my salvation. Don't let go of God's hand. He won't let go of you if you don't let go of Him. That is the last verse of 1 John, but we're not done. (laughs) One more lesson. Because this has been so long. And you've been so patient. But it's been so long. We're going to step back next week, Lord willing. And we're going to look at it and say, well, what we, what, what's the big picture here? Let's, let's stand back and let's look at it and let's see what are all the things he said. Because he said these things over and over. And uh, we're going to find out in, in, uh, in one short, short lesson what we've been looking at for all these many weeks. If you're someone who has lost your joy, you're in Christ and you've lost your joy, you're participating in sin. And I'm not talking about the felony sins. I'm talking about the misdemeanor sins or the felony sins, whichever. Whatever. And if you haven't been here and haven't heard my description, then I'm sorry. But if you've been participating in sins through attitudes, whatever. If you're one that just struggles with, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know. I want you to take a look at your life. Examine yourself. Make sure you're not worshiping an idol. And if there's some way that you need to come forward for strength, for encouragement, I know you get a lot during the week from one another. Just keep that up. 
work with one another, encourage one another, help one another. But our elders are going to be up here up front to help you if you need to come and talk to them for any reason as we stand.